Thanks. Well, it's, it is lovely to be back at the Gate Church. And uh, I, I'd say it's, it's, lovely, it's lovely sort of um, uh, kind of humanly speaking to be back. Uh, <clears throat> you, you do need to know that the pastors here have asked me to preach on the whole of Genesis, um, well, two, two chapters of Genesis, and amongst the hardest, most controversial passages in Genesis. Um, so, yeah, we're looking at the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's on page uh, 17, uh, Genesis 18, and also Genesis uh, chapter 19. Um, in terms of, I mean, yeah, I mean, what, what to say? It's like it's a massive passage, just a lot to read. And it's also deeply controversial with about a thousand objections that you're going to raise as we're, as we're looking at it. Um, so I see what you did there. We'll give that to the visiting preacher. And um, I, I can only say I've, I've um, sort of taken the liberty that um, because you've asked me to preach on this passage, I've got the adequate three and a half hours to preach on it. So, you know, buckle in. Uh, <laughs> um, I promise it won't be that long. But I, these passages are complex. And what I'm going to do is sort of, uh, I'll speak for a bit, then read a bit, speak for a bit, read a bit. We'll do it, we'll do it like that just so that you don't sort of read the passage and then forget everything that's there, or f- more likely focus in on one or two verses, things that strike you, and then, and then sort of, uh, yeah, zone out for the rest. So, but it's worth just sort of acknowledging, like, why is it difficult? I think the passages are dense, complex. They make references to sexuality and sexual attack. Um, so just to warn you, like, this is your trigger warning for stuff that is kind of coming up in the, in the, in the passage. I, will, I won't be, like, um, going big on it, but it is part of what's in the, in the passage. Um, secondly, the passage is regarded as one of the great evidences of biblical homophobia. One of my um, uh, uh, gay friends used to describe it before she became a Christian, actually, but she used to describe it as one of the clobber passages. And like this passage is not Pride Month friendly, just to warn you, okay, the, the um, you know, obviously in terms of the, the, what the word Sodom lends itself to. But if what you're expecting is therefore a kind of a long rant about the depravity of our culture and the need to withdraw from it as Christians, I think you're in for a bit of a surprise in terms of what the passage is addressing. And then, like, get away from just the intricacies and the things that we notice and feel as we look at the passage. There's the whole kind of, where does it fit in the context of Genesis up until this point? And, and like, how does it fit in the flow of all the things that you've been learning from from Abraham, because again, we don't want to sort of just ignore that or pretend that none of that's there. So let me talk about some of that for a moment before we get into it. Um, Genesis, Genesis so far has been talking about, let's give this key word, generations, kind of generation after generation, what's going to happen, what's going to happen to humanity, um, you know, and it starts with how the world is made, broken, uh, but then you've got that question of, okay, the, the brokenness of the world that kind of goes through generation after generation. And yet in that, you'll have seen, remember right back at the start of this series, God has called out Abraham. And so that's amazing. And then you've got this kind of, this particular generation, his whole family that God has called him, commissioned him, sent him. And as the story continues, it's actually full of pathos because whilst God might have saved and called this one family, you're thinking, okay, it's one family, but it's not even one family. It's, it's one couple, and actually, they, you know, they don't have kids. Like, what's going to happen to the promises of God? You know, as he gets older, as Abraham gets older, and as Sarah gets older, what's going to happen to all of the promises that, that God makes? And so you've got this kind of pathos of kind of what's going to happen amongst these 
generations and one generation. It's like it's not, it's not going to happen. So the promises of God, is that going to die out? The Old Testament going to end sometime midway through uh, Genesis? And if you know the story, from Abraham, actually the whole Israelite nation will be born. That nation which finds its fulfillment in Christ and through Christ, the global church of the people of God. So billions of people discovering and knowing God through Christ and in Christ, as your little saying up here says. So big twist coming. But right now in the story, there's this point of tension being developed on how are the promises of God ever going to be fulfilled. And then you've got this other issue, which kind of emerges through these chapters, which is basically how are this family who are called out to be the people of God, how are they supposed to relate to and interact with all the other nations and, and kind of different people groups and um, like people who are not the people of God? How are they supposed to relate to the wider culture? What do you do as the people of God when you're going into places that are places full of threat and, and rejection where worshiping God isn't, isn't easy? And that's an issue as Christians that we're still kind of wrestling through today. And so one of the things that God has just kind of instructed his people on, the men of the Old Testament have got to be circumcised. It's like a physical uh, marker, just as people today kind of, I don't know, have you got tattoos? You sort of put, have a tattoo to kind of show, I don't know, what are you doing? You're sort of um, indicating you're not vanilla or whatever, vanilla flavor human, um, you know, catalyzing your sense of identity or something. Well, male circumcision was the marker, um, a body modification, Okay, we've sacrificed ourselves to God, and we're marked out. But then where do you go from that? When, when you enter into the culture, what are you supposed to do? Like, do you, do you withdraw? Are you, kind of, you have that marker, but are you supposed to withdraw and, and escape from the culture, or are you supposed to kind of go and conquer the culture? Like, what, what are you supposed to do? And so, I know this is all long. We've not even got to the first reading yet. Okay, but the, this is it's key to sort of understand where we, where we go. I promise I'll try and pull it all back to, at some point. But there's a contrast between two sides of Abraham's family in this. Abraham's family, Abraham, okay, and Sarah and his, his side of the family, to some degree they've withdrawn, okay, as they looked out over the plains of where do you want to go um, to, to into where God is sending you. And um, <laughs> there are two sides of the family. Lot and his wife and his family, Abraham's nephew, they go down into the cities, probably because they're the obvious place to, to make your money, okay? So um, that's the choice they've made, okay? We're the people of God. We're marked out. We're going to go into the city and see what happens with that, okay? And then Abraham, kind of, I don't want to accuse him of just totally withdrawing, but he's, he's gone in a different direction. So we're going to avoid the places where people already are, and we're going to go somewhere else. And so there's this kind of question of, of who's right and what, what happens with all of that. So three things we're going to see as we, so I'm saying that as all kind of background, so you've got that. You know that, okay? Three things. Offering help and justice is the first thing we're going to see. Then secondly, pleading for help in the face of injustice. And then thirdly, withdrawing help and bringing true justice. I'll, I'll try and remember to mark those out as we go through. But first one, offering help and justice, okay? And you've got this kind of model of good hospitality. Let me read chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. The Lord appeared, this is page 17, if you've got one of the Bibles on the little tables in front of you. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, where he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. 
When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. Then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get the seers of finest flour and kneaded and baked some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and he set them before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Okay, so first thing to see is just kind of appropriate levels of hospitality. Three uh, visitors turn up, and we know straight away that they're important because what does Abraham do? Well, when he catches a glimpse of them, he runs towards them. In a a culture where important men do not run, he runs out towards them uh, and and greets them. And when he reaches them, he bows low to the ground um, because I think Abraham has some sense of who it is who's visiting them. And uh, there is some sense of kind of a, what we, I guess what we would call a theophany, an experience, or, uh, experience of a physical manifestation of the presence of God. I, by the way, I should say some of the early church fathers made a big deal of the fact there's three visitors. <gasps> Trinitarian theology right there, Father, Son, and Spirit. I don't think we need to necessarily go there to be persuaded. Um, but they are on their way to visit Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham doesn't want to miss his opportunity of meeting with God. So he gets the best beef, the best milk, water, sits down to eat together. And where hospitality is important in that culture, you'd even host your enemies, by the way, if they came around. Um, And some parts of our city uh, still have this level of hospitality. If you turn up and knock on the door, you know there are some cultures in our city where you'll be welcomed in. Everything else must be dropped. You don't get to work. You don't do anything else. You you cook and make sure people have... uh, have got what they need. So this uh, uh, kind of uh, carries on through the ages. But for Abraham, having some sense of who this is with him, there's an even greater significance to what's going on here. Because chapter 15, God had announced a covenant with Abraham. He's spoken to him again in, in chapter 17. But now, I think what's going on is it's sealed or confirmed. It's like the covenant is being ratified with a meal. Now, I don't know whether you think about kind of, um, you know, ratification processes. Probably in our lines of work, most of us, we don't have to worry about this sort of thing. But if you ever see kind of the climate conferences, you know, COP, whatever, um, can't remember what number we're up to, 28 or something, I don't know. Um, those, those sorts of things, or there's peace accords going, being written or, or whatever else. How do politicians seal the deal? You, you ultimately all ends in sort of a handshake with a photo or, a, you know, holding a pen you know, whilst they're sort of using the, the grape, it's a massive pen, um, you know, King Charles sort of, bat, bat, do you remember that, bat, batting it away or something, whatever, promise away, invade Scotland, something. Anyway, and this, but they didn't do that here with Abraham. It's not, you don't seal a deal with a pen and paper. You seal a deal with a meal. Well, that rhymes, beautiful. Seal a deal with a meal. Um, and this is what you do. And so it is a sign. We are at peace. We are in union together, called and commissioned. It's something remarkable. This is um, Abraham's Zacchaeus moment. Do you remember Zacchaeus? Tax collector, traitor, up in a tree, little man. Uh, not a friend of the Israelites, not a friend necessarily of Jesus, but keen to at least see what the fuss is about Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus does? Calls him down. 
commissions him. And then Jesus being Jesus does what only Jesus can do. I'm coming to your, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And what, what's going on? We're, we're at peace. I've made, I've made peace with you. Okay, I've, I've walked into your life. I've called you. I've walked into your house. And now there's peace amongst us. Okay, so that's, so, you know, uh, that's what's going on, I think, in this section. So what are we supposed to make of all of this? Well, I think, this, you know, obviously there's significant things for Abraham. He's kind of knowing and experiencing some, some of the peace with God of what, what, what God has promised him. But I think we've got to understand some sense of the importance of well, hospitality. How does Abraham treat these visitors? How much does he know about them? In a culture that experiences cultural breakdown, it is, it's, I think, important for us to see the role of hospitality because the kind of hospitality that we've experienced from God. And we long for people to have this kind of experience, having God come, enter into their homes and, and dwell with them. And that's what's on offer in the gospel. To not just say, oh, by the way, can I tell you the gospel so that technically you understand in your head what I'm going on about God. It's not that. It's that God comes and, and dwells. It's what God has done in your life. That's what you're longing for and praying for to see in the lives of of other people. That's why it's important for us to be opening our homes. That's why it seems to be an imperative in the New Testament for, for leaders to be people who are opening their homes and exercising hospitality. Our meals together are not just meals to have fun and socialize and show off how good we are at cooking, but God being at the center of his people, making his home and his dwelling with his people. Our city, I can't remember what the numbers are, terms of the size of growth of our city, but it's, I think the city has grown roughly by 100,000 people over the last 10 years. So that's a growth of like 10,000 people coming to our city year by year. And vast numbers of those people are coming from other parts of the world. And vast numbers of those people will never be in the house of a, someone who's been here longer than them. What an opportunity it is to open our homes so that other people might experience something of the blessing of what it is to, to know true hospitality, because that is what is on offer in the gospel. You're not offering hospitality because you're nice people. You're certainly not offering hospitality because you're good cooks. You might be, but it's not the primary reason. You don't have to be. It's the blessing. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing. So that's the first thing, is offering help and justice to some degree. The second thing that we start to see is pleading for help during injustice, because it seems that these angels who are, or these visitors, and the Lord, on their way to, um, to Sodom and Gomorrah, and um, they are uh, kind of looking at, 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 at what they're going to do uh, with this city. And so we'll pick up the next part of the story in in Genesis 18, verse 17. Abraham, and it's, well, I'm not going to read it all, so you can just sort of uh, 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 look at it, but um, uh, see it there. The Lord is wrestling. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him and keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. 
there's some sense of the Lord kind of deciding, determining to share his plan with Abraham. And so he does. He talks about what has happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And of course, within Abraham, that creates some real sense of angst because, well, not just for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but for his own family. It's like the last time I saw Lot, know where he's going. So verse 23, he starts pleading. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? And God answers, saying, no, I won't. So (laughs) Abraham, sort of not wanting to push his luck, starts to drift down. One of his 45 people, one of his 40 people, till finally it's down to 10. May the Lord not be angry. This is verse 32. But let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And actually, that's what happens. So Sodom and Gomorrah do get destroyed, but only after God has removed those he wants to save. And in this little section, I think it's, there is something quite instructive for us, just teaching us something really remarkable about God's grace, but also about prayer. It's teaching us something remarkable about God's grace because it reminds us, well, how does God relate to us? God is a holy God. We do deserve judgment. Yet God doesn't always treat us as our sins deserve. It's teaching us something about God's grace and about the role of prayer. And I ask, and I don't mean to sort of ask a provocative question about how peculiarly bad our city is by comparison with any other city. But does God not have some real right to judge Birmingham in the same way that he does Sodom and Gomorrah? Is there not some sense in which we all, living in the light of Genesis 3 as we do, know that we don't deserve righteousness in its own sake? We don't saunter into the presence of God and say, hey, buddy, we know what we deserve. But in the end, in the end, what does it mean for us? Well, of course, we are going to talk about uh, Christ and how he intercedes in that sense. But there's something remarkable here that God chooses to bring Abraham into the story. God is both utterly in control, and yet somehow that doesn't negate or undermine human culpability. So the freedom that the people have had in Sodom and Gomorrah Freedom to be used to rebel against God and not worship God. They're not forced into it. It's their choice. We're not determinists. But God shows Abraham what he's about to do. And he's not asking for advice or help. He's not saying, persuade me out of it. But because God desires communication with his people. God knows there's something to be gained for Abraham and his discipleship. If he just rescues Lot and his family and and Abraham doesn't know the state of peril that they were going to be in, something is lost in terms of how they interact together. So as Abraham hears the plan, it motivates him. He's grieved. And he wants to test to see 
how gracious God is. Say, how important is it that judgment reigns if actually there's going to be some sense of injustice there, that your people who you've made promises about are not going to be saved? Is that fair? Is that right? Would you spare a whole rotten city just to save one family who are marked out as yours? And through this interaction, how this family are rescued, Abraham sees more of God's grace and more of God's faithfulness that he could ever have imagined. So as Abraham prays, asks God about this, does his prayer work? Well, I guess on some human level, you'd say yes, and he appeals to God's grace, and he sees God's grace. But by the same token, Abraham's prayer does not undermine God or change God's mind. I think the plan includes praying. Abraham's prayer was always part of the story of how this happened. And through it, Abraham's relationship with God is deepened. He gets an insight into the mind and mercy of God, and so do we. So when God invites us to pray, we shouldn't look on that or think of that as, oh, that's a burden. It's a privilege. It's a privilege, a remarkable thing. We have a relational God in heaven who loves you, who desires to be in relationship with you, who wants to involve you in his plans, who wants to say, I want to involve and ex- I want you to express what you're feeling and thinking as, as we've already done this morning in, in lament. I want you to speak to me. And in the midst of it, we find and experience more grace. See it to the depths. I'm sure if, I get, if, you, if you've got small kids or you know people, who, you're in the gate, you know, you know people who've got small kids. What do they do on when it's Mother's Day or Father's Day or a birthday? For, you know, you, they, they traipse around the shops. There's parents going, come on, I'm going to buy something for Father's Day. Really, Dad? <laughs> You're just buying, buying Tobler in for yourself again, I see. <laughs> or buying something for the other parents or whatever it is. Because you're going around with the one-year-old and the two-year-old, and they're saying, oh, I'll get a toilet brush, and you're putting it back on the shelf, going, no, that doesn't really say I love you. It's not quite the right thing. What happens? Through the whole process, it deepens relationship together. It's a similar way when we pray with God. We're asking for stuff that He gives. We're asking Him to be at work as the one who pays the price. But to see those prayers answered draws completely on His resources, not our own. And we pray because our prayers are born out of a relationship, because he's chosen to invite us in, to be part of his, his plans and purposes. To pray for your city. Pray for the other Christians and the other churches in the city. The Puritans used to believe it was the existence of Christians in the city and the prayers of the Christians in the city that prevented Sodom and Gomorrah happening in their own places. Now, I'd... I'd I don't think you should necessarily swagger into work tomorrow going, ah, your protection hinges on my presence being here. <laughs> but can I, t- can I tell you something that blew my mind? Before the pandemic, someone was doing some research in our little local area. They were studying it because it's experienced some gentrification as areas of the city do from time to time. And somehow it resisted white flight. Somehow families had started moving into our little corner of the city. 
and money was moving in and different things. And there was this strange sense of both com- community and localism and all these different things that were kind of going on. And it's made our little sort of neighborhood attractive. Now, I cynically, okay, I find that very easy to write it off as sort of middle-class, urbanite, sentimentality, scruffy, sturchly, chic, whatever it is. It's people living out their pulpish, common people fantasy, if you kind of are aware of sort of 90s Britpop. But here's the thing the guy doing the academic research told me. He said, I don't know whether he even put it in the research in the end, but he said the high density of Christians committed to living locally from different churches, nothing to do with us necessarily. He said it, seeing different people committed to living locally had visibly changed the atmosphere of, of the community. Okay, and where we live is one of the most atheistic radical left-wing areas of the city, and yet the presence of Christians had formed a critical mass around which other people could form community. I find that kind of remarkable that that was his observation. There are some weeks when I'm living where we live, and I, you know, I, I don't look at the crime statistics on that map that shows you the criminal activity in the area, because I feel like I'm living in Sodom. But it's important to remember our calling. We're called to the people city. Pray. And then finally, final thing, which is about bringing uh, justice. So what happens when we see people not acting rightly, justly? How do we respond and how do we live in the midst of that as God brings justice to bear? And we've got to see a contrast, okay, between how Abraham treated those visitors, the angels, and the Lord, with how then the people of Sodom treat them. Look at, verse, uh, look at chapter 19, verse 1. So this is on page 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. And when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. See, same response from Lot as Abraham. My lords, he said, please turn aside from your servant's house. Turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. And he prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they'd gone to bed, all of the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them, shut the door behind him, and said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. You can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But when the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back to the the house and shut the door, they then struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. It's a really, really serious situation. Now, The offense of the city of Sodom is, I think, a combination of a number of things, both particularly their sexual sin 
and violence and how they're treating outsiders. Okay, it's a really traumatic passage if you've ever felt close to a situation like this. If you read Jude 7 in the New Testament, Jude writes, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So there is some real sense that their sexual sin, perversion, sexual violence, seeing other people as just fresh meat to be exploited and abused. Like when you compare this with, if you read the first part of Genesis, Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve and the marriage relationship and how sex is introduced there. The purpose of sex between husband and wife, like this could not be more different in terms of how it's presented. But added to that is also an issue of the heart. So Ezekiel 16 says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. So God speaking to Israel at this point and calls them sister to Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. And the passage, as I say, is remarkable because in Ezekiel 16, God is calling out the people of God for their sin. And God describes Sodom as their sister. says, their sins are your sins. So again, I want to suggest that rather than just using Genesis 19 to bash other groups or other people in our city, we should use it in the way that I think Ezekiel and Jude, Old Testament and New Testament, these, these, what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah serves as a, an example of warning to the people of God to say, how will we behave? Where does our sexual ethic come from? Where does our approach to justice come from? Where, what does it have to teach us about how we uh, treat the stranger? Where are we tempted to sexually mistreat people or overlook the needs of vulnerable people? I'm sure there is a message for our city and our culture about how God feels about sexual sin. Our culture is one of the most sexually liberal cultures there has ever been. It is also one of the most unhappy cultures there has ever been. I'm sure those things are linked. The level of kind of sexual abuse and violence and exploitation that happens in our city is horrendous. Our whole culture looks at sex as having a self-serving purpose rather than having any sense that God might have a view on how we use our bodies. But our first response, I think, as Christians ought to be to check our own lives first. Say, what does this have to say to me, to us? Are we looking at pornography? Are we mistreating people? Do we degrade people? Do we just look on other people and treat them as pieces of meat to be used for our own exploitation advantage? Do we have seriously dysfunctional sex lives in terms of how we relate to people? Are we aware of the most vulnerable people in our community? Are we seeking to protect and honor them? What would God say about us, not not just our city? And if we know there is stuff going on within our own lives, an addiction to porn, or we have a secret history of sexually misusing people, maybe even things going on within our marriage that goes unspoken, maybe we know we've been the victim of these things. That's why we're here in church, because we hope, we long 
for relationships that have a different basis to them. We, we long for a community that sees power and sex in a, in a different way, a different framework. We're going to need Jesus to minister to us. And we're going to need the presence of His Spirit to enable us to live different. But this is part of the calling of the people of God, people who are prepared to live and to be different in a culture that has really sinister, dangerous views of sex and power. But I think to us, we've also got to see it through a different lens. You know, I said at the start about Jesus, uh, sorry, about Abraham and Lot. Who does the right thing? Who does the wrong thing? Who goes to the city? Who goes to the country? I think we need to, to reflect on the moment for the fact that we have Christ who when he comes, when he enters in, again, it's like the same story repeating, isn't it? Turning up at the door, seeing how is he treated and what does he do? I find it absolutely remarkable. These most famous words in the New Testament are this from John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. That Jesus, when He walks in, when He sees how people are behaving and responding, when He sees the exploitation of the women across Israel, when He sees how people are relating with sex and power, He sees the same things happening as happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Meets with prostitutes, people that most men just looked at as pieces of meat to be used or Looked at the religious men, looking down on them as people who are sort of dirty and people to be avoided in case they've sort of tarnished their apparent holiness. And there's Jesus kind of wandering in, seeing the stench of the city. And what does God's Word say? He's not come, that same spirit of Sodom and Gomorrah, to, to bring judgment and punishment. Though that would be righteous, but first to redeem and rescue. And how does Jesus relate to that culture? Do you remember the most common accusation of Jesus? What do people say about him? He is a friend. Don't go near him. It's dangerous. He's a friend of drunk people, gluttons, and sinners, like sexual sinners. And that's like, what a beautiful description of the church. <laughs> that we are here, friends of Jesus, gluttons, drunkards, sexual sinners. This is the place where Jesus meets his friends, ministers to us by the Holy Spirit, and we are remade into the people, the kind of people that Abraham and Lot were, were called to be. And that is what Christ is able to do. He's able to redeem and rescue not just a small group of people, large groups of people. That's what we're seeking to do. That's why we're on mission to the city. Where else are people got to go. Where else are they going to encounter Christ who offers life and hope? Now, I've got to be cagey in this, in this passage. I don't think Abraham is withdrawing from his culture necessarily. I think he's consistent with his calling. I think Lot, by the way, goes headlong into the culture and kind of is there to make his money. And, you know, that's, that's not great. Maybe your temptation is to think, well, Abraham was right. What we ought to be doing in this period, this life, right now, is withdrawal. 
Or maybe you think, no, Lot was right. <laughs> like, just live life to the max. That's why I live in the city. I bought a flat here so I can kind of do city life to the max. I love the city. And into all of this, I think we just need to remember, we need Christ. He neither withdrew from the city, nor did he seek to belong to the city. Instead, he had a much bigger purpose and mission to redeem the people of God for the sake of the city, bringing them into a new city of heaven. Now, I barely mentioned it. There's another kind of counter-narrative that's going on all the way through this passage. I'm just going to mention it in briefing. But you've got Sarah, who, when the people come, when the, the three visitors come, Sarah has such a conflicted time with them. Actually, let me just turn to it briefly. Because she doesn't know what to do with what they've got to say. She has this, um, I, I think she carries a significant grief because she knows that God has got plans for her, her husband. And I wonder, this is not in the text, because it's me wondering, it's not in the text. But I wonder whether Sarah thinks that God means for her to die so that Abraham can carry the line on without her. So here is what the visitors say to Sarah. Sarah was, oh, sorry, verse, this is verse 10 of page eight, on, verse page eight, on page 18, verse 10. One of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? <laughs> then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. And he said, you did laugh. There you go. <laughs> um, made you laugh. There you go. There's this whole thing going on in this passage about what does it mean to have faith and trust in the promises of God? How are God's purposes and plans going to be worked out? Sarah, actually, in this passage, doesn't really believe it's going to work out well. And in the end of the year's time, what does she call her son? Well, it's named after the, he's named after this instant. God laughs. Oh, sorry, uh, God gives the one who laughs it. And, but through the other side of the passage, you've also got Lot's wife, who's a kind of compare and contrast figure. How does she respond when God brings judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, the very end of the story, it's not great. It's not great. You see, in verse 26 of chapter 19, Lot's wife turns around and looks back. And I just wonder whether there's something else that's going on. We barely touched on it. I sort of feel like I can't let it go. When God is working out his purposes in his people, we have some degree of responsibility. When the temptation is not to believe, not to trust, to mock, to giggle, to laugh, to say, well, that can't happen. It's not going to work out like that. So we have some responsibility not to look back, but to instead embrace the new identity that God has given us as the new people of God. There's some compare and contrast going on between these two women and their responses. Both are faithless, but remarkably one of them doesn't look back. One of them does. It's not good. So again, as we get to the end of this passage, there is something. Just what does it mean for us to work out our identity as the people of God? Embrace it. Enjoy it 
and not to live in regret for the things that he saved you from, but instead to live in the things that he's called you to. Why don't I pray there? I wasn't, I was long, I'm sorry, but I wasn't four and a half hours. Let me pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your word, for the power and strength of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would seal it in our hearts, that we might know what it is for us to live in our new identity as the people of God. Lord, we do grieve for our city, and we pray, Lord, rather than just calling down judgment on heaven, sitting up in the licky hills, where, when are you going to come? When are you going to rebuke? When are you going to challenge? Lord, protect us from that spirit. Well, Lord, if we're tempted to go the other way, and we love every day living our best life in the city, hoping it's the fulfillment of every wish and every dream we've ever had, Lord, protect us from that. And to see the city as you see the city, Lord. We pray into the midst of that, that you would enable us, help us, to carry something of our ministry now to be the ones who are called to preach Christ, to see you rescue and redeem, not acting and fulfilling all in judgment as we know one day will happen. But Lord, longing to see people come to to Christ. We pray, Lord, that as they come, you would help us to be the kind of place where we are experiencing radical life transformation. As we see our own relationships with power, with sex, being transformed, that we are holy and people who stand for justice and truth and fairness, and righteousness, that we can be a community that really does minister to the city and exercise real hospitality for the city because we know what it is to experience hospitality from you. And we are experiencing the presence of your Spirit changing us, transforming us from the inside out. So help us, Lord, we pray.